forever. Dog. I was wearing a big red bird suit with yellow floppy feet. And, and again, little did I know that that would be early training for a career under lots of rubber bits and costuming and makeup. Welcome to Household Faces, the podcast where a character actor interviews other character actors. I'm your host, John Ross Bowie. You might know me from Speechless, The Big Bang Theory, or House of Lies, where for one episode, I played a chief financial officer with a foot fetish. Our guest this week is Doug Jones. Do we call him a household name? Well, no, obviously, it's this podcast, but a household face? Hmm, definitely a household body. You have seen his body of work. Yes, I did it. You have seen his body of work uh, in The Shape of Water, where he played the asset for Guillermo del Toro. He's also on Star Trek Discovery, and he has a terrific arc on what we do in the shadows. And how can we forget Hocus Pocus? All of this and more with a fascinating conversation where I help him solve a decades-old mystery surrounding one of Guillermo del Toro's more esoteric monster movie references. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Doug Jones. Doug Jones, thank you so much for uh, for joining us. Uh, I'm uh, I'm really excited to talk to you, and I want to um, I want to dive into the hits first, if I may. Um, let's talk about your work on on Star Trek Discovery. Let's just charge right in there, shall we? Sure. That's one. That's a recent hit. If you're, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're gonna go sort of non-linear. Uh, <laughs> but it's such an interesting character. He's almost, um, he's almost an anti-Vulcan in some ways. I mean, he's all, he's a science officer, yes, but he's also he, there's a, a ton of heart in this character, and a ton of empathy. And mm. was that was that what drew you to it, or or was there it's this sort of mix of like incredible intellect and incredible heart. Right, well, thank, well, thank you for, for even for getting that out of my performance. <laughs> uh, Saru is a Kelpian and this is a, a, a brand new species to the Star Trek franchise. So that was quite an honor to help build that from the ground up. And, you know, it's very exciting. Uh, and I started as a science officer in season one of, on the starship Shinjo and, and by episode three, I was first officer. So I'm, I've yeah. been in the command track ever since. Uh, and so he is, he is, he does have some authority, uh, but I love that he doesn't abuse it. I love that he is very gentle uh, and very nurturing with the crew. Um, he's been, uh, over the course of, of the first three seasons that have already aired, I was first officer, acting captain, first officer again, acting captain again, first officer, acting captain, and then captain, captain. So as he's been playing ping pong with his rank a lot. Um, That's some rarefied air to be an actor who is the uh, who is a, a captain of a Starfleet ship. That is, I mean, what's what's that list? It's like twelve actors, maybe. It puts you in a, it puts you in a small club, yeah. So and I felt yeah. very very honored. And ah, and I was the first uh, captain of a title ship uh, who was an alien. That's right. You would have yeah. been. That's yeah. that's that's a great stat. That's so a I, great. I <laughs> yeah, you no, mean, you can absolutely brush a little dust off your shoulder for that one. That's okay, badass. I might just do that. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> What's interesting about the Kelpian is that they are bred as prey, pretty much. Or not bred as prey, but their their whole purpose is sort of, you know, they're they're it's a very binary system they come from. How does that influence your performance? 
Right. Uh, living in fear was kind of like a baseline for Saru when I first took on this role. Uh, now, along season two somewhere, we find out that uh, those threat ganglia that, that, that's, that splay out of my neck whenever there's a threat. And I'm like, ah! he was a scaredy cat. Kelpians are scaredy cats. But mm-hmm. uh, there, then, the, then we go through a phase called Vaharai where... Those, th- those threat ganglia splay out, they get swollen, and this is like, we think this is when we die. The, pre- the predator species on our planet, the Ba'ul, uh, kind of like groomed us to believe that this is the end of our life, and they, they will do a mercy killing, and we're grateful for it. But now I, I'm the first Kelpian to get away from the planet. I go through, through this Vaharai on the ship by myself. I was sure I was going to die. I was saying goodbye to my crewmates. You know, this is the end. And... Uh, and Michael Burnham, the, uh, the our lead actress, uh, Sonequa Martin-Green, and I had Sinequa. a very touching scene together in my quarters where yeah. I was asking her to do a mercy – I asked her to do the mercy killing. Could she cut my threat ganglia off and that will be the end of me? And as she mm-hmm. got the knife up to – to teary, teary, she didn't want to do it. My threat ganglia fell out on their own. Surprise! And uh, and then we find out later in the, in this season that um, that what replaced that threat ganglia were, were little spikes, that are quills that I can shoot. Uh, so it looks like – it looks like the history of our planet, Kaminar, that we were the predator species at one time, long, long ago, and the Ba'ul outteched us, and nah. got, and they 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 got a way to convince us that we have only a short lifespan and that they'll they'll take care of it from here. <laughs> so, we, 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 yeah, the to, total they're the definition of gaslighting for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's interesting about Discovery and indeed most of the 21st century Star Trek uh, iterations is a shift in humor, it feels like. that The humor is different post-2000. Um, it, there's a dryness to it that, that is missing from the slightly bigger comedy of... Uh, of I'm th- I mean, you know, I'm thinking of... of uh, you know, Bones losing his temper with Spock or with the, right. the you know, the 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 sort of uh, the weird dad jokes of the Ferengi or whatever, you know, and <laughs> there there's a, you know what I mean? There's like a subtlety right. to the humor. Have you, is that something you've noticed or am I, am I just talking shit? No, no, I think, I think uh, uh, you, you talk anything you want, but I, but I, uh, I feel that the, the humor of the show, when, when there is humor, it's it's a very dark, you know, uh, lots of It is dark, but there's, but, but no, there is, our, but, there's, but there's funny, yeah. There's funny, and a, a lot of the funny comes from our, our precious uh, Mary Wiseman, who plays Tilly, uh, the, the young the, the young cadet turned uh, ensign. But as Saru, I, I did have a lot, they, they have done me the favor of writing me some smarmy lines here and there that are kind of like, where, where I'm the where I'm the butler of Downton Abbey, and I can say a little little something that we all understand what's really going on. Hmm. Right. So I I do, I do appreciate those moments a lot. That's exactly what I've noticed. There's this sort of um, he's in a way sort of straight manning the ship. He's almost our proxy in the show. Mm-hmm. Like he's the guy who's like, actually, it would be really good for us to disengage. And warp speed our asses out of here because there's just a lot of there's a lot of badness in front of us. So if we were going to go behind, and I think that you find yourself nodding along with Saru when you're watching mm-hmm. the show, like no, this guy's clearly mm-hmm. talking sense and might be the only one. So it's it, there's a certain responsibility I think that comes with being the audience's proxy. Yeah, oh, well, thank you. But, uh, yeah, and and I don't look like the audience. That's the funny thing is I'm, I'm the weird looking alien. Yeah. And, and, 
hoof boots. But uh, but no, but the writers have done such a great job of making me so incredibly relatable, and I appreciate that from them. Let's back way the hell up for a moment here to um, to Indianapolis. Um, oh, you were born there. Did you grow up there? I grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana. Yes. So I'm always interested in 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 people who who grew up in medium cities. You know, mm-hmm. I, we talked to a lot of people who are from New York or L.A., and yeah. we talked to a lot of people who are from Podunk towns I've never heard of. Right. Um, but this this middle ground of like, you know, it's it's you know it's it's not a it's not a rural community. This is a legitimate city. This is a, a, a yeah. one of the largest cities in the state. Um, mm-hmm. what was the, was there a theater scene? What was your exposure to, to the craft of acting at a young age? Yeah. Uh, Indianapolis is about a million people big. And so there, there was an art scene. There was, you know, there were community theaters, there were, uh, there were, there's concert halls and orchestras, the Indianapolis symphony. And, you know, so there, there was culture and art. Uh, I uh, never felt deprived. Right. We lived in a, in a suburb outside the city though. So, uh, I I do have a hankering for and, and here in L.A. now I live in a suburb outside the city. I'm kind of I'm kind of like I don't want to be in the fray. Yeah, I'm, I've never never enjoyed that. You want to be fray adjacent. Is fray adjacent is fine. Yeah. Growing up, do you remember going to see theater when you were a kid? Not a not live theater so so much. Uh, my uh, my dad was a big movie lover. Uh, he loved he loved war movies especially and back in the '60s and there were a lot of them. Uh, so many war movies in the sixties. There were, yeah, um, and you know, I remember seeing, um, oh gosh, the uh, uh, the Sting with um, Robert Redford and and Paul Newman in the theater, and uh, I saw Mary Poppins in the theater. I saw Sound of Music in the theater. That's how old I am. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> and th- those were those were magical. The movie theater is, is was it was a magical experience for me that, that made me dream and and look 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 forward. I'm I'm doing the math here. There's I don't unless you were very very small. I don't think you saw Sound of Music upon its initial release. That's a re-release. I'm trying. No, that can't be right. I don't think that's. I was born in 1960. All right. You know what? I'm the sort of person who can't sleep if I don't figure if you don't this look out. It up. Find out okay. exactly when when Sound of Music came out. Oh yeah, you've been five years old. Okay, I thought it was earlier yeah. for some reason. Yeah. Um, so. so <laughs> Was there a point then, if you're just going to the movies and you're just watching TV and you're 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 watching, um, God, my dad loved war movies too. Um, uh, was there a point where you realized that acting was something that a person could do for a living? Mm. And and when was the moment when when Doug was like, oh, I I will do this, right? Uh, that was more on television. Uh, uh, watching TV, uh, the sitcoms, I loved. Grown-up sitcoms. I didn't watch a whole lot of kids programming when I was a kid. I, uh, but Dick Van Dyke, Mary Tyler Moore, Bob Newhart, uh, uh, variety shows. The Carol Burnett Show never missed an episode. And you know, yeah, Carol same. Burnett, the Tim Conway, um, yeah. uh, Harvey Corman, Vicky. Lawrence. I mean, that was just a uh, these brilliant character actors. Gomer Pyle, Gilligan's Island. Uh, those were the shows that I related to because they. They weren't romantic leading men. They were, yeah. uh, they were, you know, they had their own style of goof. And I felt like I definitely had my own style of goof. So I was like, wait, so they're, they're my hope. And, and Barney Fife, uh, Don Knotts from the Mayberry show. Come on now. That's, he was, he was like my beacon of hope for the future. I thought if he, if he can do that, I think there's hope for me. 
What was it about specifically about Don Knotts? Let's, let's uh, talk because I, I, I ask everybody who their favorite character actors were. Yeah. And it sounds like we're off on Don Knotts, and no, I want to talk about. I could, I could talk Don Knotts for hours. What was it I about know. him? It, I think it was he. He was he was built like me. I was I was always been a very skinny kid, and he had big eyes and and full lips and kind of like as did I when I was a young younger, and. Uh, I, his skinny neck with his little tie kind of dangling off of it. <laughs> I just, I got that. And then, but him trying to puff up and act bigger than he was. And it was just hilarious to me. Um, yeah. I, I understood, um, you know, subtleties and, and whatnot. I, 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 whatever he did comedically, it rang, it rang in my, in my heart, you know, the false bravado of Bonnie oh. Fife. I think is such a, it's like a Rosetta stone for so much comedy mm-hmm. in the sense of like, <laughs> here's this, here's this little beta male who is going to try to present as, uh, as something much, much larger than he is occasionally. Mm-hmm. Um, and he would do it also on, um, uh, he would do it as Mr. Furley too on three's company. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he would have that sort of sense of like going to a karate stance or, or, or something, yeah. you know, he's, sh- he's shorter than Joyce DeWitt, but he's still got this <laughs> moment where he's, <laughs> uh, I know. Oh gosh. He was delightful. Yeah. mentioned beta male and that's exactly how i felt as a kid because i had three older brothers that were all like uh macho athletic you know and i was the, i was the skinny uh, youngest one that, that kind of had a hankering for performing and i didn't really they all went to college on full ride scholarships for something and uh for for sports, for, for sports? yeah oh wow and, and interesting I, I, yeah well i was one that was like i'd i kind of want to kick my legs in the air and and go whoo on stage. That's what I want to do. So, <laughs> well, you're you're tall though, aren't you? Are you? Oh yeah, no, I'm, I'm I'm six three. And I, I'm six three. I was six three and a half. I think I lost a half inch. You know that I'm sixty one years old, and yeah, I think I'm shrinking. Uh, it happens to the best of us. But um, <laughs> when did you sprout up? Oh gosh, early. I, I was one of the. I was always like among the two top tallest in my class, no matter what age I was. So. So there, there was this. It's so interesting how how thick blood is because you're, you know, yes, you're, you're you're skinny, fine, that's all well and good, but you're six three, you're towering over potential bullies, but you still felt a little, oh yeah, a little small because of the older brothers. They they, they could puff and blow me over, absolutely. So uh, yeah, so I I never felt like I had like I could defend myself or whatever. So I, so I developed a sense of humor instead. I was the goofy guy that did armpit farts, and I thought if they're going to be making fun of me or laughing at me, I'll 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 decide when that happens and how. That's kind of what. what that's <laughs> so well articulated. I think that's such a common thread through our guests on mm-hmm. this podcast. But but you phrased it better than anybody. That sense of like, if there will be laughter, I will control <laughs> that narrative. <laughs> right. right, that's the hope. That's I the hope. I will be at the wheel of this. That's right. that's really um that's really compelling. So you you. You go to college, you go to, uh, wait, Ball State? Is that right? I went to Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana. Mm-hmm. You were a theater minor, but a communications major. Uh, I'm always confused when people say they were communications major because it's like, what, did, what exactly do you mean Does by that? Does that mean? <laughs> right. Well, uh, uh, the major was called telecommunications, but my freshman year, it was called radio and TV broadcasting, and they changed the name of it midstream during my, during my degree. So 
telecommunications, which meant radio and TV. Yeah, but my, see, the thing is, my parents weren't really thrilled with the idea of me majoring in theater because, and, and you know, any any wise Midwestern parent should say this to their kids. <laughs> you just, there's not many jobs in that field here in Indianapolis, so... Uh, yeah, so you, you can major in something else and minor in it. I don't want to put you on the couch too much here. What did your parents do for a living? Oh, my dad was a was a self made fellow. He was very, an entrepreneur. He he ran his own consulting firm for business and industry on their employee training. He also uh, was in our local Indiana state um, legislature. He was in the House of Representatives for about twelve years. So he was a lawmaker, and he also uh, got fed up with the. Uh, uh, not fed up, but he, he, he and my mom were kind of like dissatisfied with the Methodist church and decided to start a church in our house. So any, any, anything he wanted to do, he just started doing. And our, that church grew to a, a high school auditorium and with quite a, quite a, a, a big congregation after all. So it was a, yeah, my parents were, uh, I always felt, you know, like I was living in their shadow for sure. And my mom, my mom was with four boys. I, she was a homemaker. And uh, that was quite a full-time job. Yeah, of course, of course. So here's this guy who is a, um, uh, I, I don't like this law. I will change it. I don't like this faith. I will change it. Um, <laughs> um, but he's also a massive movie buff. Um, but he, I guess he feels like that's like the one thing that he doesn't want to, like he will consume, but he will not participate. Is that fair to say? <laughs> Yeah, I guess so. But and know, I'm saying this. My dad was the same way. My dad was the same way. I, th I think. I think he had secret, secret dreams and hopes of being a song and dance man. Uh, he loved Gene Kelly and uh, and uh, Fred Astaire movies as well as war movies. So the, the song and dance thing. If he if if he'd had a way to do that, he would. He, I think he would have. Uh, that was that was a, a hidden dream. But he was a very practical man. So you know. Oh my God, our dads were astonishingly astonishingly similar. So yeah. you go to Ball State, you you minor in theater as a mm -hmm. sort of a, 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 you know, consolation prize for your parents. <laughs> right. right. Exactly. And, exactly. Uh, and what um, uh, what theater do you do while you're there? What what do you uh, what, what plays do you do? Well, uh, I didn't do a whole lot of play plays. I joined the mime troupe in my freshman year and that became my my most performing uh, thing that I did all, all four years was I was in the mime troupe called Mime Over Matter. Get it? Oh my God, yeah, that's yeah. fantastic! Yeah, I collect sure. um, I collect college improv group names. Um, oh, I do, do not. Uh, I do not. Yeah, spontaneous combustion cast on a hot tin roof. I love uh, it. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love all of it, but um, I, I don't have enough uh, college mime troops. Mime Over Matter. That's fantastic. <laughs> And yeah. had you done mime in high school? Was this your introduction to it? No. So at 18, you started in on this. That is correct. I was living in a dorm, as, and there was a senior that lived down the hall from me. His name was Reed K. Steele. And Reed was, was, the, was the, uh, the kind of the head of that mime troupe. It was, it was student-run. There was no faculty involved. So uh, he got to know me like by hanging around the dorm and the, in the... In the, the the cafeteria and all and, and being a tall skinny guy who talks with his hands a lot and very expressive and makes a lot of facial expressions. He's like, Hey, have you, have you ever heard of the art of mime? And I said, Oh, like pantomime. I, I think so. Yeah. That's like the, the white face, the gloves, the don't talking. He goes, yeah, I'm, I run the troop here. 
come see one of our shows. I, I think you might be interested in joining us. So I did go see one of their shows and I was- You got recruited. You got scouted. I did. I, and I was mesmerized by the show that I saw where it was two hours of, of one skit after another where where they were making things happen. They're making props uh, materialize that weren't there, uh, make, making, you know, the communication that can happen without verbal dialogue. There's so much visual communication that we, that we don't, don't all often realize. So, uh, I, I, you know, I laughed, I cried. I mean, they touched a lot of emotion in that show. So I was like, yes, I'm in, I want to join. So I did. And, uh, and little did I know that the mime, uh, troupe would be early training for the career that I was going to have later. And also while I was at Ball State, I was the, um, mascot charlie cardinal for the basketball seasons my junior and senior year so yeah so i was wearing a big red bird suit with yellow floppy feet and and uh and and again little did i know that that would be early training for a career under lots of rubber bits and and costuming and makeup that's so interesting and for our younger listeners i I feel it's important to mention at this point that if you're going to get into mime, the late 70s was the moment to do it. Mm. it, it, it mime was having a, a, a cultural moment then. I'm 10 years younger than you, but I remember Mum and Shantz. I remember Shields and Yarnell, Yarnell being on network television. Television, right, right. They were a big deal. Television had a half hour of mime every week for a season there. Yeah, yeah. And I believe they followed, I, I want to say they followed Donnie and Marie. Everybody had a variety show, yeah. <laughs> Or Sonny and Cher. Everyone had a variety show, no question. Yeah, yeah, but they were they were one of the um, and they were on, and they were they were. I I would be very saddened by some of it. I would be very mm-hmm. moved by some of it. But it was and, and Mum and Shans had a Broadway run. I, I grew up in the theater district in New York, and right down the street there was a mime show on Broadway. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a it was mime was having a moment as as funny as that might sound in 2021. This was a uh, this was an incredible time to be going in for something like that. Did you have a sense of like, oh, my God, I'm at the dawn of something or was it just a fun little extracurricular activity? I didn't feel I was at the dawn of, uh, of it uh, because um, that that senior that I told you about, Reed Steele, uh, he had been trained by Richmond Shepard, who was a, a a well-known mime in Los Angeles. He was the TV film go-to mime, uh, and and uh, and Richmond Shepard was trained by Marcel Marceau. So so I went. I, I kind of had that legacy from from the French end. Um, right. I I feel like I'm kind of a, you know a great grandson of Marcel's that, <laughs> with the with the training. Yeah. So, sure. so I didn't feel like I was like I was inventing anything new. Like this is going to be big. It already was big in my mind. Yeah. What was the plan after graduation? You've got this background in mime. You've got a background in in TV and and radio. Um, I mean, is that video editing? What 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 were your what were your mm. courses like? Yeah, it was a little bit of everything. I uh, I learned how to be a DJ. I learned how to run uh, you know, run a, t- a TV talk show floor uh, from directing to running cameras. So yeah, it's a little bit of everything. We didn't really get into editing. Hmm. Yeah, I don't remember ever doing that, which would have been helpful probably. But but I wasn't really going <laughs> to pursue that anyway. I really wanted to be an actor. So 
Okay. Um, yeah. But but I was in Indiana and you graduate right. and my first my first job out of college was uh at King's Island in Cincinnati, Ohio. Big theme park. Their summer season was up and they had auditions for street performers. So what do you think? The mime? Yes. And and they had a they had a a, a scaled down um Eiffel Tower uh, on International Street with fountains and it was like a you know big European kind of look at the very at the at the entrance gate. That's where the area that I worked at in my you know my beret, my striped shirt, my you know of course my suspenders, the whole thing. <laughs> I imagine very, there's a small red flower on the suspenders for some reason. Sure, I, I okay. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it was very, very typical. Very, and they wanted it that way. Yeah, great, great, yeah. Well, let's not reinvent the wheel. <laughs> right. But what was that? That's so interesting because I, I, we talked to a lot of people and my wife actually did a bunch of theme park work in Orlando. And yeah. the common thread among theme park employees is this hardcore professionalism. Like there's this sense of like, this is my job. I work in, you know, 30 to 60 minute shifts um, uh, in all kinds of weather. Um, in some types of bludgeoning heat, but there's this real like work ethic that comes with theme park work that I don't think people outside the business fully appreciate. Was that your experience? Mm, I, I did feel that way. We had we had a lot of live shows and a lot of a lot of walk around characters, and and we would we would green room together under one of the stages. Uh, so we, there was a lot of uh, of intermingling of of the uh, different art forms. You know, we had. A juggler. We had a, a ventriloquist. You know, these are the walk around people, and they had like musical mm-hmm. review shows upstairs on the stage, uh, song and dance, and all that. So it was. Um, uh, I, I felt it was a very performy kind of, uh, and and everybody was so good. They, they, you know, they they audition uh, at colleges all around the region uh, to get kids uh, to perform. So they they really do get the best, you know, of, of that region. Mm-hmm. So I, I felt like I was a part of something kind of big at the time. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. How um uh how do you start if you're in Indianapolis, how do you start getting a footing? When do you when do you come to LA? Mm, that took another another couple of years. Uh after the King's Island season was over and I was kinda of, now I'm like, okay, I have to look for a career job. Oh so I I I went the way of I have to wear a tie, I have to carry a briefcase, I have to do something responsible and adult like. So Right. I, pers- I pursued sales jobs, basically. And I got uh, to North Manchester, Indiana. Uh, and uh, I went up there and interviewed for a, the, a, a newspaper advertising salesman position and um, got it. They were happy to have a big city kid uh, who had a college degree come to this tiny town of 6,000 people. The newspaper came out only twice a week. And it was about 8 to 12 pages when it came out. So it was okay. not a big... So, so I, I made a, made a meager salary, and I got to know all the merchants in town, and I, I traveled outside of our town to neighboring towns to, would you like to advertise in our paper? So I did that for, and I and I would also help them come up with their campaigns and their, you know, or if we had a special night in town, like you know, everyone stayed open late for to celebrate some something, you know, uh, I would I would help organize all that and do the advertising for them. So the, I got to know the merchants really really well, and. Uh, and in that small town, though, the minute I arrived, uh, the newspaper put a picture of me in the paper with, you know, new employee. He's a head of our uh, advertising sales. Da, da, da. So, you know, come to Doug for all your advertising needs. 
and I got a phone call the uh, the, the day after that pay, after that issue came out from the librarian uh, that that was two doors over from our newspaper, and she had gone to Ball State University. She called to say like, "Hi, Doug. Don't you know? How do you may not remember me? I'm so and so, but I I um, I went to Ball State. Are you still doing mime?" And I said, "I haven't, but but I I would." Uh, Oh, good. Well, see, we we have a children's reading hour, and I would love it if you could come in and just do mime instead. So uh, I had to ask for time off to do that from my boss, and so he sent a photographer with me uh, to. He thought if we're going to do this, let's put it in the paper. So, uh, so big front page, huge picture of me, kind of going, <laughs> making a face with a <laughs> very mimey, you know, splay of the fingers, uh, and that's all it took. When you know, he's performing at the thing. And they had a picture of the kids like looking up at me, a separate photo of kids looking up at me and just laughing. So it was a great sales pitch uh, in this, this front page uh, article. So I started getting calls from the Rotary Club. We'd love to see you to come and perform for some after dinner entertainment. The, uh, the Optimist Club, this church, that Boy Scout, Girl Scout troop, this school, this parade, uh, can, you know, and, uh, I, I stayed busy as a mime moonlighting. Uh, so it, it was, it was a, it was, I was really glad to keep the artistic side of me alive while I was dying a slow death as a newspaper advertising salesman, <laughs> you know. But here's a question at the risk of sounding a little cynical, mm-hmm. does a career or at least a, a, a brief stint in sales help you as an actor? Uh, well, as an actor, you do have to sell yourself. Yes. Uh, so is there is there a crossover in technique? Maybe I don't know. Maybe <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm perhaps I don't. I don't mean to. I'm not trying to pimp you into anything. I just you know I I feel like the other the other trajectory of a lot of actors. Some actors leave this role and they go into other things. Oftentimes, real estate. Um, yeah. And uh, because the money's good, but there also is a certain amount of charisma involved in the uh, in in the craft of real estate sales. So I'm always <laughs> interested in like the two way street of sales and acting. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't want to impose my own uh, weird hang ups <laughs> on you. Let's yeah. let's flash forward to Los Angeles for a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. Tell me. Tell me about Billy Billy Butcherson in Hocus Pocus. Well, it is the season right now for Billy Butcherson. Hocus Pocus is airing repeatedly on the Freeform channel right now. Constantly. And uh, yeah, no, I, I'll tell you, the ride that that has been uh, has been really, really magical. Uh, you know, when you do a movie, you hope that it's going to come out huge. And so this is 1993 that yeah. Hocus Pocus came out in theaters. And we thought, this is going to be a huge hit. And they released it in July of family, <laughs> right, right, against all the blockbuster summer movies. And here we are. Uh, 93 you know, is what? Uh, that's, uh, is there a Die Hard that comes out that year? Oh, God, it's Jurassic Park. 93 oh, is it? Jurassic Park. Oh, for crying out loud. Fucking hell. Right, right. So we didn't have, didn't have a prayer. But. Uh, so and they were they were they kind of they kind of advertised it as a Bette Midler comedy because she had quite a string of of hits uh, of her own by then. Instead of you know advertising it, what it was, it was a very family friendly, kid friendly Halloween celebratory movie. Uh, and so they so I when it came out and tanked at the box office, I thought, well, that's the end of that. Uh, then it aired on ABC uh, one night, and and people were like, huh. 
And then it aired on uh, ABC Family Channel repeatedly, which became Freeform Channel repeatedly, repeatedly during October every year for the last 28 years. So what's gone on with, with that then is people caught the bug. They bought the VHS. They bought the DVD. They bought the Blu-ray. They're buying the 4K now. <laughs> it's like uh, – yeah. Uh, the, the movie has only snowballed into something far bigger than it ever was, which is the opposite of what movies do. They usually open big and trail off into into a memory over time. Well, ours no, but I mean, small. But, but cult films like that. I mean, it really and, and it, I will call it a cult film. I, yes, yeah. it's a family movie, and you're not going to necessarily double bill it with Rocky Horror, but it's no. <laughs> it's got a. It did not do well upon its initial release and has grown in estimation over the yeah. ensuing three decades. Yeah. Um, it's such a fascinating arc. Are you, I mean, you're, you're again, this is the beginning, uh, not the beginning, but one of many roles in which you're, you're nigh on unrecognizable, but you're not mm -hmm. fully prosthetic in that. Do you ever get recognized for it? it right. He's a 300 year old zombie. Uh, uh, Billy is. And I, um, and he looks like me, you know, because it is patterned after my own face. So they kind of built the cheekbones up so they could hollow out my cheeks more. Right. And all that. But, but right. uh, once people figure it out, because he looks different enough from me that it's not it's not like an instant. Like, you know, they don't look at this face that you're looking at right now and go, oh, my gosh, that's Billy Butcherson. Right. But, uh, but, <laughs> but, 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 when, but like when I do the convention circuit, for instance, and meet the fans one on one yeah. and they, they see a picture of Billy on a banner behind me. They they can do the uh 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 yeah that is you yeah they can figure it out <laughs> that that I love the idea of the 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 eyes going up down up, yeah, yeah, down, exactly. up down confirmed yes <laughs> exactly. yeah it's a that's a very specific convention uh, uh, head move I find yeah I think you're right um, <laughs> uh, it's you know it it's probably your biggest collaboration but I think it's in a, a number of respects it's one of the big collaborations in modern cinema you and you and del Toro how do you guys hook up with each other oh I, I, I that I adore that man he changed my life for the better and and I, he I, you clearly well very very kind um he we we met uh on mimic his first American studio film uh he so mimic is after Kronos, right it was after Kronos. He had done that feature film and yeah, he'd done a lot of work right. in Mexico before Kronos as well. Television, short films. Uh, he did a lot of commercials. He, and he also, he wrote, directed, and it was even in them. Uh, and he, so he, he created monsters for almost all of them. He, he loved his monsters. Yeah. Uh, so on Mimic, uh, Mimic was filmed in Toronto in Canada. They were doing reshoots, pickup shoot, shoots for it two weeks before the movie came out in theaters in Los Angeles. So the Canadian actor that did the the big bug guys in the movie, it would be like to fly him per diem him, hotel him, and get a work visa for him. Much so that the tall skinny Rolodex came out at the creature shop here in L.A. and they're like, oh, oh, let's Doug, let's call Doug Jones for this. So I got a I got a call the day of uh, them saying, um, are you free for a night shoot tonight? And I'm like, well, out of work actor, yes, I am. So I, I went downtown, stood on top of a, of a four-story brick building and leaned over the edge and in the, with a rain machine hitting me with this sort of insect-looking face and, and, a, and a trench coat sort of thing. That's the whole point of the movie. They were these overgrown cockroaches that took over the subways in New York and they mimicked right. humans. So, so uh, Guillermo loved what I did. Uh, and I didn't meet him. He was down on the, on the ground on a megaphone, so I didn't really even see him or meet him. Uh, that night, but I came back for two more days of of, of pickup shooting. Second day, uh, we're doing some green screen shots indoors, 
And at lunchtime, he sat across the table from me and he put his chin in his hands and he said, so tell me all the monsters you've played before. And I'm like, wow. Uh, okay. So I thought, is this a fanboy or is this the director? You know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the, well, he's out, both is the beauty of Del Toro is that out, he's clearly both. He is both. And that's why, that's why he resonates and his, his art resonates with all of us so, so much. So we connected on creepy crawly monsters and the love of them. And um, I'd already, I'd already played quite a few things by that time. And he knew all the makeup artists I'd ever worked with and asking if they were nice guys and da 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 da. It was really, really sweet. So, um, so then uh, five years later, uh, he kept my card in his wallet. And um, from that, from that lunchtime and five years later, uh, the first Hellboy movie was being in pre-production and they had sculpted a maquette uh, a, a small scale down ver- 3D version of Abe Sapien. And they unveiled it for, for the director of that movie, which was Guillermo del Toro. And legend has it that he fell to his knees and said, Oh, you are so beautiful. And I am so fat. I, I'm not sure exactly. What the, I'm not sure what that meant, but I think he was. Looking well, it's at a, a paraphrase of, uh, of, uh, of Charles Lawton in Hunchback of Notre Dame, isn't it? Oh, uh, you are so beautiful and I'm so ugly. That's exactly what it was. Thank you. Oh my gosh. I never put that together. That was, <laughs> oh that my was, God. Have I solved a 20 year old mystery? Y- yeah, you did. Thank you. Oh my gosh. Thank you for that. Of course. Cause he's, he's a, he's a collector of quotes. He, he's, he stores he away, is. he stores away every artistic thing he's ever consumed uh, for reference. And it all comes out in references later. Oh my gosh. That's brilliant. Thank you for that. Uh, so, so the guys that, that had sculpted that all knew me and the creature people, uh, at spectral motion shop all knew me. They were like, you know, the perfect person to play this is Doug Jones. Guillermo said, Doug Jones, wait, I know Doug Jones. And he pulled my card out of his wallet and they called me. And so I, so that's how Hellboy happened for me. You fit the suit. <laughs> yeah. yeah <I> know. <laughs> that's incredible. You yeah. have, um, there's a, there's a couple of great moments and I, I love, um, well, Abe Sapien is in a number of ways. He is sort of the the pencil sketch of the asset. Um, yeah. uh, it, well, a lot of comparisons. Like the romantic have been made. monster. Yeah. yeah. The the romantic guild uh, creature. You know. Um, but what I love about Abe Sapien is his musicality. There's a there's a great scene you can find it on YouTube um, of you and Ron Perlman singing Barry Manilow together, which is yep. just a wonderful sentence to say. It just feels good <laughs> saying that. I know. And everybody's a fan of uh, Barry Manilow, whether they admit it or not. All right. Oh, exactly. Oh, we're yeah. all fanalos. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> fanalos. Yes. Um, but it's a, it's a really, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful moment. It's a weirdly moving number. You, you yeah. guys are just kind of having this bro out and, and drinking. Was there a moment where you looked at the script and you're like, oh, this is going to be a blast. Do you remember shooting that scene? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. That was Hellboy 2, The Golden Army. And coming back yeah. to reprise the role of Abe Sapien was just a treat anyway. And getting to see and reconnect with Ron Perlman and Selma Blair and and um, oh and Jeffrey Tambor. Oh, they're just great, great loves. And uh, uh, so when I saw that scene in the script, I was like, oh, my gosh, he's drinking beer for the first time. Hellboy's like pushing it down his throat. And and then, of course, but he's, he's lovelorn. So he's listening to sappy music. And so but we didn't know what song yet. So when we got to the got to. We filmed that in Budapest, Hungary, and during a rehearsal yeah. week ahead of filming, I asked Guillermo, "What song did you get?" I was, I was so excited. What song did you did you procure for this movie? He said, "Oh, it's uh, Barry Manilow's Can't Smile Without You." I was like, "Yeah, ah, uh, ah, uh, 
I didn't. I didn't have to look at lyrics. I I knew it in my heart and soul already. I, oh my gosh, I was so excited, so excited. I love that you. Oh, I'm already off book. Don't sweat. Yeah, it. no, no. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but 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 that uh, that relationship that you, that you mentioned with Guillermo, uh, Hellboy one and two, and then uh, the the more artistic ones than Pan's Labyrinth and The Shape of Water. Yeah. Those were the two movies that that took us to award season afterward. I mean, the Golden Globes right. and the Oscars with. Six nominations for uh, for uh, Pan's Labyrinth uh, and thirteen nominations for Shape of Water, including Best Picture and Best yep. Director, well deserved. And yeah. so to go on a ride like that, in when you're wearing rubber bits that are glued onto you, that's a dream I never thought would happen. You know. Well, what's interesting about about his work in the grand scheme of the business is that he is. It feels almost dismissive to call him a genre filmmaker, but he's a genre filmmaker who who shows up at award shows. And, you know, you don't see that from John Carpenter. You don't see that from Brian De Palma. You know, these are these are all um uh and, and and to take nothing away from those guys at all. I'm a massive fan, but there's something what do you think it is about Del Toro's work that elevates him past quote unquote monster movies? In the eyes of the public, yeah, no, he. Um, it, it is his understanding of the human condition. It is his understanding of underdogs and his understanding of underdogs finding their voice, finding their their muscle, and coming out on top. That's a, that's yeah. a, he, that's a, a running theme through all of his movies. And um, no, you're right. Yeah. So we, I, I love, love, love being a part of that kind of storytelling. Well, he's there's there's a sense of of downtrodden superhero that runs through mm-hmm. so much of his his work. Um, Shape of Water is a particularly interesting piece, uh, particularly from my perspective as a guy who does a podcast about character actors. That movie is character actor porn. It's you. It's Michael yeah. Shannon. It's Michael Stolberg. It's oh. Nick Cersei. It's just a Richard right. Jenkins. Richard oh Jenkins. my god! I know Jenkins work in that movie. <laughs> Holy shit, he's so good. Um, I mean, here's the problem: when you're dressed up the way you are, how much hang time do you have on mm. set with these guys? I right when I'm when when you're encased in rubber, you are a smidge more isolated than everybody else. Yeah, I did I did my best to mingle and, and inter, interact as much as I could, but I also have to save my energy for camera because it, uh, it, it yeah the minute you're in something like that, the clock starts ticking on how long you're going to last. You know, so I have to right. I do have to save it. But uh, but if I can share a moment, uh, <laughs> please. Uh, the 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 design of the amphibian man from the Shape of Water took all, over a year. To get the shapes and colors just to his liking, and the amphibian man had to be romantic. He had to be. Yeah. You had you had to buy that a woman could fall in love with him, and and that he was. He's a so monster he, who's a romantic lead. Absolutely right. So he had to be kissable. He had to be ass grabbable. So they. <laughs> so the, the ass uh, of of the amphibian man took lots of shaping and reshaping, and lots of discussions happened over that. But I think I think we pulled it off because it was the most beautiful backside I've ever worn. <laughs> um, were you? I mean that that movie was a a a commercial and a critical success. And um, were you taken aback by how well it did? Nope, not at all. I uh, no. Wow. Yeah, I I saw this one coming, and I'm going to pat myself on the back for that. When Guillermo, we were working on Crimson Peak uh, years before. Yeah. I was two of his ghost ladies in that movie. On a day off, he asked me to come to his office and he, and he pitched the idea of this movie to me. 
and he wanted me to play the amphibian man. And when he was telling me the storyline of it, I sat there just like, oh, <gasps> and I said to him, this is your next trip to the Oscars. And I, I, I knew, I knew that he, he you know, the story that he, he didn't have a script yet when he, he was just verbally telling me the story. And I thought it, if that story he just told me is directed by him, he's going to, this is going to be a hit. And I called it, I called it. You did. You absolutely did. Yeah. It's funny there, you know, there's that, there's that term that, that the business uses a lot called execution dependent, mm -hmm. um, which yeah. is like, okay, the idea could work in the right uh, hands. Right. And, you know, the second you like get too arch and jokey with something like uh, the, the mute uh, worker who falls in love with the amphibian man, um, the whole tone is shattered. So it has to be very meticulous in its approach. And, and that's what we mean when we say execution dependent. Like, you know, this will yeah. work provided it's Del Toro, provided it's Jones right. in the suit, provided you've got a, the genuine menace of Michael Shannon, uh, yes. you know, yes. to raise the stakes. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful piece of work. Um, let's take a quick break from prosthetics remote. Do you have a role where you're not under a ton of stuff that you're fond of? Mm, I, I, yeah, I've been playing humans all along as well, but they're just not quite as well known. Um, right, I know. Yeah, I uh, I had a great time. Um, I was a recurring guest on an ABC show called The Neighbors. A, a human family moves into a, 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 sub, a subdivision in New Jersey, and they don't, they're not aware that they're, all of their neighbors are aliens posing as humans. They took over an entire an entire uh, subdivision, and I was one of those. I was a recurring guest. I did about six episodes in season one. Had a such a ball. So I was playing an alien, but I looked like a human. They, so they they were looking for character actors to you know all of us, uh, all of us in the neighborhood were quirky looking, uh, you know, slightly off, <laughs> and uh, but slightly off to me is like totally on. I I I, I love character faces. I, I and I love I love being in a category where I, I'm allowed to age. I don't have to stay sexy and romantic there all my life. I can I can be funny and scary and all the things that you can age with. The the there's something in that show where there's an interesting physicality in all of the aliens because they're not used to their human bodies necessarily. Yeah. Was that something you you were you played with a little bit? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I, I've never felt comfortable in my own body anyway, so it was it was it was a natural it was natural. Uh, we we did we did we did morph a couple times with some CG into our, like you could see what we really look like uh, just a couple yeah. times, but that no no makeup involved. It was kind of a blah, blah, there they are you know when something somebody it's somebody says something the wrong you, know, you say the wrong words we we we, we morph and then we have to morph back into human. I don't know it's. Uh, it was great fun. Now another another uh, human role that I that I did dearly love. I did an independent movie called My Name Is Jerry, uh, and I played the yeah. title role of Jerry. It was a uh, it was a middle aged uh, white guy going through midlife crisis, which are things I am and have done. So I understood him, <laughs> and it was written specifically for me by a friend. So uh, uh, it's a it's a very charming, lovely story. Big uh, hit on the festival circuit. Jerry. It did, did we well did. on the festival circuit. Yeah, it did indeed, and and uh, it's now now it's on. You can actually find it on YouTube in its entirety for free. So oh, beautiful. Uh, yeah, yeah. Back to costumes for a moment. Back to okay, makeup, sure, back to prosthetics. Sure, sure. I want to talk about what we do in the shadows. I was 
that showed up. You showed up on that, and I was like, who is this guy who <laughs> is under 20 pounds of makeup and still nailing jokes? And then I was not at all surprised to find it was you. Um, oh, thank you. Uh, what's that? Now, that that set is clearly, there's cl- because of the faux documentary uh, uh, format of the show, there's clearly room for improv. Did you get to play? And how often do you get to play when you're under that much stuff? The, the writers are hilarious. And the script is just genuinely the funniest thing I've ever been a part of. Every episode that I've been in. Um, uh, but the... Um, because it is, it is an you know because of the style of the show being a mockumentary and with lots of you know that handheld reality kind of look. Uh, after we do the scripted version, they always encourage us. You know, the next take is this makes this the fun one. Play, do whatever the heck you want, and and the 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 golden moments that happen out of that because you know that cast is there. Everybody is so funny on their, in their own right, and they come up with with brilliant you know one liners and and moments and aside looks and i just it's it's it is such a, a treat to be a part of that and yes i'm the one who's in encased in lots of makeup but you know the older i get the less the less rubber i want to wear because you know I'm, like i said i'm 61 now but when it's funny that changes everything that's a game changer for me it's like it I, it must I, be i look forward to going to work because i'm going to be laughing all day and that changes the whole demeanor of of that gig that's a, it's such a uh, a fun show, and it has such a way of it. Just understands how funny it will be if you if you dress everyone up and give everyone very very serious lighting, and uh, and then have them do just the the dumbest pettiest shit. And they're just like <laughs> you know, just the game of like, what if the what if the worst roommates in the world were also vampires? And it's just such a clean format for right. for funny to come from. Right. Um, uh, I I love your your work on that. Did I read you're doing a remake of Nosferatu? Yes, you did. Um, uh, it is it is in the can and finished uh, filming, and it, it's this was a couple a few years ago. Unfortunately, it's ta- it's uh, post production has taken quite a long time because they they were on an independent budget, and uh, and every every frame of this movie has a green screen element to it. Uh, we were all of us actors were filmed. Uh, uh, in front of something green and the, the original film footage was put behind us. So we got to play in the oh, original man. film in the original film, basically. So oh, we, we had, wow. we had, we might've had a door frame here and there, a, a desk, a, you know, a, a bedroom built, but, but there's always something, something green on it. So post-production has taken forever and it's gotten quite costly. And uh, so I'm told it's, it's close. Now I did see a rough cut that we're missing some, some VFX about, about a year ago. And I, I did like it very much. And I, I was happy with my performance as Nosferatu, um, Count Orlock. He Orlock. was a dream role for me. That, that was, he, was the, he was my bucket list. Really? Yeah. I was asked a lot of, I mean, a, a question that came up a lot in interviews would be, is there a monster or creature that you haven't been able to play yet? And I was always like, I would like to be Count Orlock in a remake of Nosferatu. And specifically Orlock, not Dracula. You specifically want to be right. the German. Yeah. Okay. Well, because I, 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 I'm, you know, Dracula uh, had again had that romantic, sexy appeal, and I just don't feel like that. I, I related with Nosferatu. He when he was a count, and he he must have had his day where he was regal, and but he doesn't realize how much he's faded into this grotesque being. I love that. Right. 
Yeah. I uh I I didn't realize that that was the hook that it was you guys inserted into the old footage. That's yeah. so I I love every I love that one. I love the Hertz the Herzog version. I'm yeah. I'm too I'm a massive uh a massive fan. Yeah. Um you you mentioned that that was on your bucket list and that's so amazing that you got to do something that specific. Yeah. Um <laughs> you had such a specific bucket list and it and it came true. Is there a role that has gotten away from you? Oh. Well, uh, I was I was cast. Uh, uh, my favorite book is called This Present Darkness by Frank Peretti. Angels and demons fighting over a small town and the, the town people don't know what's going on in the spiritual world. Okay. Uh, they were going to make a movie adaptation of it. This is, gosh, this is back in the 90s, uh, early 90s. And I was brought in to be the main demon in the movie, Lucius. And it was a delicious role. And uh, we went through the whole makeup testing process. We did a camera test with some dialogue. And it was like, this is working so good. Oh, my gosh. And they pulled the plug on it before it ever got uh, finalized. So I was like, shoot. Uh, yeah, that was the one that was the one that, that I felt got away that I really, really wanted to do. It's always sad when something like that falls apart. But it's it's, uh, you know, the, the usual version of that story is um, we did all this incredible stuff and then blank got the role. Um, oh, which there's is, that. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, and that that's uh, uh, that's uh, infinitely worse than the whole project burning down and nobody gets to play it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, looking at a role, auditioning for a role and then blank got the role has happened to all of us. And I, I just had yeah. to come to a place where I, I let those go. I can't live in, in the I can't lament and like, oh, I wish that would have been me. I mean, that that because that happens. It would have happened weekly as a young actor. I just I, I couldn't do oh, it sure. myself. Yeah. No, it gets to a point where I I am now um, I I'm no longer upset. I'm no longer like um, you know what ifing my way through it. Yeah. But I, I I do reserve the right to be amused by the fact that you know I'm I'm not turtle on entourage. I I reserve the right to be like, huh, that's weird that I was even in the mix. You know. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Um, I, 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 and I, and I'm always interested in like the sort of alternate universes that come up when I talk to actors about this stuff. Um, we had John Carroll Lynch on a couple of weeks ago. He, mm -hmm. um, he was apparently in the mix for, uh, Walter White. Who knew? Who would ever take that away from Brian Cranston? But I mean, that's also an interesting take, you know, that's an right. interesting take. Well, and I did, uh, uh, having watched, uh, the British version of The Office with Richie, Ricky Gervais, um, I, I then was then up for uh, the role of Dwayne in the American version. Uh, I forgot about this. Yeah. Uh, Dwight. I, I, oh, I'm sorry. Dwight, 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 Dwight. I, I auditioned. I made, got a call back. I was like, oh, this is going good. And Rain Wilson, I'm so glad he got it. Uh, no one could have played it better than him at all. Love him dearly. We have we have uh, we have um, two people on this call who auditioned for Dwight. Oh, um, so uh, you too? Uh, yeah, though they they only saw every weird nerd say, in this yeah. town for Dwight. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's uh, every right. single stripe of nerd uh, right. for Dwight. Um, and then I was in that weird kind of gray area where they were like, mm, "Here, take Jim's sides. Go out in the hallway. We'll see what." And that also did not pan out. So, and right. I would never take away the, any away from Krasinski. Oh. You know, he's oh, he was perfect gosh, in that part. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, uh, uh, yeah. Um, that's amazing, though. Yeah, that, but that is interesting, though. That idea of of you as the uh, the creepy military veteran lurking around the uh, lurking around the the office. Uh, yeah, there's something there. Um, Doug Jones. <laughs> I cannot thank you enough for your time. This was really fun. 
Oh, well, thank you for, for finding me a worthy subject. This is, I'm very complimented. Oh, beyond worthy, please. You kidding? This is great. And that is an episode wrap on actor Doug Jones, who you can find on social media at actor Doug Jones on both Instagram and Twitter. And you really should. Forever. Household Faces is a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by John Ross Bowie, Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Produced by Ben Blacker. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcast.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook. Until next time, when's lunch? Mm.